Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. In the news recently has been consolidation among asset managers, one after another after another. The latest, UBS, is looking to possibly buy another asset manager, either in the U.S. or Europe, uh, in order to get scale. And this raises a question, what is the right size for an asset manager in 2018, 2019, 2020? And we have someone who's going to answer that question with precision. Eric Balchunas has the answer. He has all the answers. He's been predicting this for a while. Eric Balchunas, senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Eric, uh, what did you make of this UBS announcement and how big is the right size? Uh, well, look, uh, this is not a surprise to me. And I'm not sure the right, the right size. The way I've always seen it is, look, I mean, the data is there. 90% of the net cash that's invested in funds goes to products that charge less than 20 basis points. Um, and 70% of that goes to less than 10 so who's holding those funds? It's Vanguard and BlackRock. They're taking in two-thirds of all net dollars invested in the United States. So this is only going to get bigger. The reason it hasn't been bigger yet is the market performance growth has built the assets up of some of these people who have seen organic outflows. But I would imagine after a bear market, you could be looking at something more akin to the airlines. You know how there's like three big airlines that control about 80% of the market? And then you have um, you know, smaller airlines like Alaska Air or... Uh, uh, something that does local trips, something more exotic. I wouldn't be surprised if you see the middle just clear out and get consolidated. So just like other things that grow big, right, other industries, uh, there's three or four big ones. And then there's uh, a lot of little ones that do specialty things. In that case, I think um, quants, uh, hedge funds, alternatives. Uh, there's uh, emerging market specialists. Um, and we were actually talking to uh, John Bogle for the podcast we do called Trillions, shameless plug. Um, and he said, actually, consolidation is probably going to happen, but it won't be enough. He thinks a lot of these firms are going to have to convert to Vanguard's mutual ownership structure to survive. Because, and, and I'll tell you, even some of these ones that do consolidate and lower their fees, it almost feels too late. You can tell because the flows still are largely going to two companies, BlackRock and Vanguard, even if a, another firm might go a little cheaper. Eric, is this a race to the bottom? Yeah, and we're here. I mean, Fidelity won it. Which is ironic because Fidelity they, is a they huge, offered they offered I know. One of zero. That that was why that was such a huge tell, tell moment. Tell people the detail. Yeah, Fidelity announced that they're going to offer index mutual funds for a fee of zero. Now keep in mind they already had index mutual funds that charged 1.5 basis points, so it's a formality really. But the sim symbolism of going to zero was uh, it was almost like a climax. We've been building up to this point for 15 years, and now we're here. But let's face it, you can get a whole portfolio of everything you want uh, for a c combined fee of under five basis points at this point. So it's already basically free, and that's where all the money goes. So you said that for uh, big asset managers that just now are trying to really plow in and compete with the Black Rocks uh, and the Vanguards, it's too late. What does that mean? Does it mean that they're going to be acquired, go out of business? Uh, you know, I don't know. Probably acquired, probably merged with other companies. I think you look at Invesco. They've been doing a lot of acquisitions. It has brought them up the Oppenheimer? ladder. Oppenheimer? Yeah, cool. Oppenheimer. Um, but the active mutual fund space is alive and well. Remember, active mutual funds have two-thirds more assets than passive. The reason, though, is not... The problem is organic growth. 
Market returns, the market's up, what, 180% in five years? So all the assets have more than doubled for these active mutual funds. So they're getting paid, just, you know, their revenue's great right now. What these people are starting to see is the writing on the wall. If the market stops being a money printing machine for you as an active mutual fund and you're down to organic growth, you're in trouble because there is no organic growth. Plus, you're probably going to have panicked investors pulling out anyway. So I think that's sort of what they're trying to prepare for is when a bear market or a market that's more flat makes organic growth more of a big deal. Uh, they're like, well, we're in big trouble there because really only two or three firms take in all the money. Uh, what are we going to do? And I think that's where you have them trying to figure out what it's going to look like. Eric, does this then create a situation where the companies behind these ETFs, whether it's Vanguard or BlackRock, they become utilities? Yeah, some people have talked about that. Someone actually had said that the government long time ago should have just come out with a couple index funds for the regular public and just charge nothing. Vanguard kind of did it for them. Right. Vanguard, look, Vanguard is kind of utility. We got to remember, Vanguard is owned by the investors. It's like a co-op. It is a it is a whole different animal. Like a credit union. Yes, it's okay. like a credit union. And so it doesn't have a profit motive. So it is almost like a utility. And Vanguard takes in the most money of any asset manager every year uh, you know, for the past five years. So it is affecting the other companies. That's why I call it the, the Vanguard effect is the real story. Vanguard's right. a story, but the real story is the effect that's having on everyone else. Okay, but not all markets are investable through index funds. And that's what we're seeing with PIMCO and other big asset managers trying to get more into direct lending and alternative, cre uh, alternative uh, credit and equities and, and other strategies. And I'm just wondering, I mean, is that the future, especially given the fact that the private markets have been growing much more quickly than the public markets? Yeah, it could be, however, I have noticed this trend, and because I've, especially in the fund world, there are places Vanguard doesn't have a fund. What you've seen though is people copy them. I call it they, you know, like this, like Goldman Vanguarded factor investing. They came out with an ETF for nine basis points. Now Vanguard was nowhere to be found. They just saw what Vanguard was doing, copied them. So I would not be surprised if you see people vanguarding private equity, vanguarding hedge funds. You can, but how do you how do you vanguard a strategy that owns liquid stuff? Well, you just charge less for the exposure. So let's say you're a private equity fund. You could just charge half of what people are charging on the market, and you're realizing that you're tapping into this cost obsession, which isn't just for index funds. Advisors are feeling cost obsession too. The biggest trend of our day is high cost to low cost. Active to passive is debatable. There are other trends that you see, you know, U.S. for emerging markets. Uh, high cost to low cost seems to be the thread that, that combines everything. And I do think you'll hedge funds are already under pressure. Some of them have already started doing fee rebates, offering it for free, uh, because the Vanguard effect goes beyond what Vanguard even offers. Just go ahead. Give a 10-second shameless plug for Trillions. <laughs> Trillions is a podcast I do with Joel Weber, the editor of Business Week. It's on ETFs, and it's aimed at the regular retail investor. We try to simplify and make this stuff fun. Trillions. It's a great podcast. Thanks very much. Eric Bouchernis, our senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And you can follow Eric on Twitter, as we all do, at Eric Bouchernis. Our topic now is Facebook with the shares up a little bit more than 5%. Our guest is Mark Douglas. He is the chief executive of Steelhouse. Uh, Steelhouse is an artificial intelligence-driven self-service advertising software company. 
We're going to find out what that is after he tells us all about Facebook, which is an advertising company. What did you make of the results, Mark? Um, I think that I'm surprised. Let me say it differently. I'm surprised the stock is up so much, but I think that people were very worried about Facebook. Engagement is really down, but Instagram is just doing phenomenally well right now. And that's that, I think that's what everyone's excited about. Well, let's home in on exactly uh, what you started with, that you're surprised that the shares are up as much as they are. Why? I mean, you just look at your friends, you look at your own usage. I just don't see people using Facebook as much as they used to. And so the core Facebook platform seems to be declining. And I think investors are basically overlooking that because of the excitement around around Instagram. But I think that excitement is well warranted, but it seems slightly premature. Why is there such a popularity for Instagram, do you believe? Well, Instagram, it's all about stories. Facebook basically copied stories from Snapchat, and stories, just to make sure it's clear, is just basically streaming your life. Just wherever you go, whatever you do. Last night alone, I made five five Instagram stories while I was out. And stories are really popular, and engagement on them, meaning how much time people spending doing it, is is just phenomenal. And, And so there's a lot of excitement about how that's essentially gonna rescue Facebook. Let's talk about the idea that Instagram is growing rapidly and really is the heart of Facebook at this point, whereas Facebook is losing users. I know that my children do not use Facebook and, you know, they do use Instagram. I'm just wondering, is the valuation of Facebook appropriate given the fact that its future is Instagram and not Facebook? Yeah, I I think the um, investors are betting that that Facebook will figure out how to monetize, how to advertise against Instagram stories. I think that's a good bet. I think, quite frankly, Facebook is kind of sandbagging how easy it's going to be to to advertise against stories or to increase the advertising on stories. So investors are excited about it. I think consumers are excited about the feature. Investors are excited about the money. And so, and the money is going, it's going to follow. It's over a billion users. And when I say engagement, I'm talking hours a day, people are spending on Instagram. A lot of people are spending on Instagram. Now, the Instagram story, can we tie this to the fashion industry? Um, Instagram stories are popular with fashion, but more importantly, they're just popular. No, I understand, but I'm trying to figure out how do they make money? Well, within the stories, some of the stories are ads. You click on a lot of those ads, Mark? Um, You swipe up on them, yeah. And it's about discovery. You see products you might not have noticed before. Um, You see, you're basically discovering new products. And there's actually a lot of interesting things in there. I have to wonder, you talk about hours spent on Instagram. We're already talking about the use of data and addiction to technology with respect to Facebook and, and Twitter. Uh, what about Instagram? I mean, how concerned are you about some kind of backlash that could reduce growth materially? Well, here, here's actually you bring up an interesting point in terms of data. The, the, so I'll answer two questions. So one is Instagram doesn't have the data that Facebook has. You don't write on Instagram. You only post. You post photos. You post videos. There's not a lot of data associated with that. On Facebook, you actually can type, and so they, they learn a lot about you. But the, 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 the engagement, meaning how much time people are spending, 
seems to overcome how little data it is on Instagram. For consumers concerned about data, it's actually a good thing. Well, except that there's facial recognition. There are ways to sort of use images as data. Yeah, I mean, they can tell who you, you're in a photo with, for sure. They, they have over 2 billion people in their database. But the if you want to, you know, they have to guess more. Like, if you want to go after motorcycle enthusiasts, you have to just notice that, that they can have algorithms that notice there's a motorcycle in the photo. It's not like you're typing the word motorcycle. It's just not happening on Instagram. It's different, but the, the user engagement is just so much higher. So if someone were to come to you and say, oh, I have 100,000 Instagram followers, that's a good thing. Um, that is a good thing, but I, it's that, that's different. Like, in other words, they're bloggers who have audiences. They'll send out a post and they'll attract interest. I don't think that's where the real money is being spent. There's just not enough volume there. The real volume is just within the stories. If I posted five stories last night alone, two so far today, Facebook can throw one or two ads between my stories. Because the content is free. Yeah, the content is free to Facebook, and the more content the more ads they can run. Although, I have to wonder, because with respect to Facebook, one reason why people liked it so much was, why advertisers liked it so much, was the data. They yeah. could understand how to pinpoint consumers based on their interests. How does that equation change if the data isn't as easily accessible on in Instagram? Yeah, so what likely is, what's likely to happen, now let's go to advertising, which is a business I know well. If the quality of the data is lower, chances are the ad rates are lower. So... To, to make up for that, they make up, literally, make up for it in volume. All the people posting stories, there'll be, there's more volume to monetize, but probably at lower rates. And that's the case right now. The rates on Instagram are a bit lower than they are on Facebook. As an expert in the world of advertising, could we just shift to Google and Alphabet for just a moment? Sure. I want to get your thoughts on YouTube and being able to turn that into an ad-sponsored moneymaker. Yeah, I mean, I'm not personally bullish on YouTube. I don't see um, a lot of advertising demand on YouTube from our customers. Our customers are a lot of large, uh, hundreds and hundreds of large retailers. Um, YouTube is kind of sitting out in the middle of nowhere right now. You have connected television for monetizing TV digitally, and now you have social to monetize, you know, we were just talking about Instagram. YouTube is neither of those, and it doesn't have a lot of data, and it's kind of, I, I, don't, I don't see a lot of growth from YouTube as they exist right now. Just a real quick here, do you see regulatory headwinds for, uh, for Instagram, or do you think that they're much less because of the data component here? Um, I don't see much regulatory um, headwinds for either Instagram or Facebook. I think GDPR, which is the global privacy law out of the EU, is kind of the gold standard for privacy laws. It's relatively strict, and the companies are already figuring out how to accommodate it. I don't see more anything stricter than that coming in the United States. So I think it's already priced in. I think it's already been dealt with, and, and consumers are also pretty blind to this stuff. You know, one, once you get these laws that go so far, consumers at a certain point don't care. At the end of the day, consumers are dumb. Kim, that seems to be the... Uh, well, that's not... My, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm just playing around. I, that's not what he's saying. I'm, I'm absolutely butchering it. Happy Halloween. Mark Douglas, chief executive of Steelhouse, uh, talking about advertising. He was not saying that consumers are dumb, just that people are willing to give up uh, their freedom with respect to being tracked in order for free access to all of these social media websites. Exactly. That's not dumb. That's a fair exchange. That's absolutely a fair exchange. 
exchange. I'm Lisa Abramowitz butchering uh, comments, and this is Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg. The topic now is China and its slowing economy. Here to tell us all about it is Michael, Mike McDonough, Chief Economist, Financial Products for Bloomberg LP. He joins us here in studio. All right, Mr. McDonough, how bad is it in China? It's it's worse than I think the government officials had been anticipating, but it's not not necessarily because of the trade war. I think that's uh, the important thing, the, the distinction here. Really, um, what you had happen was you had the government undertaking a deleveraging agenda, uh, which was on the surface working fairly well. You had some uh, debt ratios going down, interest coverage was going up, but the problem was uh, the parts of the economy that really needed funding that would help boost growth. Uh, were having issues getting it, primarily because these guys were being funded by the shadow banking sector, which took the brunt uh, of the deleveraging agenda. And meanwhile, um, areas of the economy that were a little less productive but still needed bond, still needed debt to roll over their old their old debt, uh, were getting it. So what this caused was a sharper slowdown than people had been anticipating. And then you throw on top of that what's happening with the trade war, which hasn't really bit yet, uh, will really start biting in 2019. And it's a problem. Well, okay, but then I guess this raises a really important question, because this morning we're getting news that China is considering adding even more stimulus. And we have seen signs that they are re-leveraging in order to stave off some of the declines and the weakness that we've been reporting on. My question is, if they saw deleveraging as so important that they actually went ahead with it, even though they knew it was going to slow the economy, what is the consequence going to be of them adding more debt to the already ginormous debt pile that China has? Well, if, if your choice is continue deleveraging and have growth slow more meaningfully than you wanted to and far further below the official government target or stability with some leverage, at least short term, you're going to go with stability, right? So uh, I think you're certainly going to see more action from the government to spur growth. Uh, I think that some of it, a lot of it will be through um, spurring infrastructure investment in, in some smaller cities. Do they need it? You know, they, they're, we, yeah, actually, if it, it, it needs to be very targeted, but if you think about it, you know China's urbanization rate is about 50%. If you look at most developed countries, it's closer to 70%. Uh, so there is more room, but it needs to be done smartly, right? I think what caused the problem with the debt, the, the, the thing that really catalyzed it, was during the 2008 financial crisis when the government did a pretty big stimulus package, and that stimulus package was distributed through a broken capital transmission mechanism. So uh, what that meant was, in really short, banks were guaranteed a 300 basis point spread, no matter who they lent to. So basically, large SOEs who didn't need money got it. Uh, this State-owned enterprises. State-owned enterprises, yes. Uh, and this led to uh, help fuel the overcapacity that we saw. The, the real estate sector was helped immensely. Uh, this led to the overcapacity on that side of things. So it's it's more, they've, they've done a lot to modernize the financial sector since then. It's not done, but they've done a lot. So it's not as broken. So it's trying to get the funds to the right areas. And I think another thing they want to do, as I mentioned, the sectors that really would, would be boosting growth uh, are, are some of the private sectors, you know, technology, healthcare, some of the consumer stuff. So trying to get those companies' funds. Uh, so it's a balancing act, but the deleveraging agenda is shelved for now, for sure. I think that's gone for the time being. Um, and you know, one thing to keep in mind, we may get a little bit of a false positive on China growth because you could see exports surprised to the upside again before the end of the year. Because if you look at what tariffs are in place now versus what could be in place next year, it goes up pretty substantially. 
substantially. So people want to front run that. You know, uh, people want to buy Chinese products now before the cost goes up. So um, that's why I say you might not really see the bite until 2019. Uh, so that's something they're wanting. They're going to want to get ahead of. The real risk, though. If, if you want to be worried, is what's going to happen with capital flows? Um, there's, there's a lot of debt that needs to be rolled over in China. So if you start seeing, like you did in 2015, strong out, capital outflows from China, that could be rather dangerous. And that is certainly something the government's going to be keeping an eye on and try to get ahead of. Here's a quote from the economics professor who oversees a survey that is sort of like our PMI survey in China. The quote is, for most, business has never been worse. What do you make of that? And if you are predisposed to invest in China, isn't it better to invest now than it was a year ago? Well, I think that, you know, like I said, the deleveraging agenda has hurt a lot of companies' ability to uh, raise funds, and it's also made it more costly. So if you're running a business, that certainly isn't great. Uh, it, it's better if you're an SOE uh, for, for, for state-owned enterprise for certain reasons. And then if you look at the current outlook, right, you have the U.S. threatening wider tariffs, uh, you know, and you, 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 you're not sure what's going to happen with this whole U.S.-China relations, which is one of the most, you know, the most important bilateral relationship in the world, world right now, uh, that gives you a lot of uncertainty because you're also seeing consumer spending slowing a bit in China, right? This isn't just weakness in one isolated area. It's a slowdown, you know, broadly speaking, across the economy. So I could see why people might be pessimistic in China uh, as with especially with the added uncertainty of what happens with those U.S.-China relations. And of course, uh, just sort of speaking to your point about the concern about capital outflows, we're looking at uh, the U.N., which is currently the weakest versus the dollar since 2008. So this is sort of the concern, right, is that the more people withdraw money from the economy, the weaker the currency, which just uh, escalates some of the problems. Mike, we're going to have to have you back because it's always insightful to speak with you. Mike McDonough, chief economist uh, for financial products at Bloomberg LP here with us talking about China's planned additional stimulus uh, really interesting. Short run, it makes a lot of sense for China to be uh, adding stimulus, but in the long run, they still have to deal with that debt overhang. General Motors reported earnings this morning that were better than expected. Shares popping by more than 7%. But the question is, what can we expect later in the week when we get U.S. auto sales, which are expected to slip into negative territory for the year? Joining us now to talk about that is Alan Baum. He's principal of Baum & Associates in West Bloomfield, Michigan. And Alan, thank you so much for joining us. So how much of the bad news is already baked in? to the auto sector? Well, I think uh, that what we're going to see going forward um, is a decline on, on the macro side, if you will. Obviously, we've got problems in the overall market in both uh, the uh, North American and Chinese markets. And uh, so GM's uh, results today uh, were, in fact, uh, kind of a tale of two cities. And what I mean by that is they controlled what they could control very well, the, the, their own business. Uh, but as I say, the, the, the piece going forward is, is uh, more difficult. Alan, this is because GM is what? Selling trucks and sport utility vehicles, and those are higher margin products. Yes, and it goes beyond that. They're holding incentives uh, in line. Uh, their inventory of product is low, which obviously helps in terms of the incentives. 
that they're in a changeover right now to their new pickups, which obviously are are profitable. But what they've done is they've they've kept the loss of product to a minimum by uh, because of their multiple plants. They can keep producing some of the old while producing the new and and uh, not having the the tremendous drop in in volume because of course revenue is is what uh, keeps them them moving forward and they're they're able to do that uh, to to keep that from declining dramatically. So they've done an excellent job. And of course, a few minutes ago, they it just came out that they're announcing buyouts of their uh, salaried staff. So they're obviously looking to keep expenses in line as well. So uh, an all-around uh, positive report for them, or not all-around, it is a tale of two cities, but they seem to be uh, bearing with the decline in auto sales this year better than some of its peers. What are you going to be looking for, given the sort of diverging market with uh, trucks still being hot and sedans not? What are you looking for in tomorrow's auto sales numbers? Well, I think we'll have a drop, and, and the drop is, is somewhat uh, misleading because we had a year ago, we still had recovery from from hurricane sales, um, but it is a decline. We are seeing uh, the uh, retail sales are holding on reasonably well, although in the new year, I expect that to decline as well. We've obviously got increasing uh, interest rates. We've got a decline from uh, the impact of the tax cut, which I would argue was still pretty modest with respect to the auto market. And the auto market has been declining the last couple of years, not terribly by any means, uh, but it's been ahead of the economy. In other words, the economy's done better uh, than the auto market. Um, but the automakers have done a good job, as I say, of, of holding uh, the uh, the cutting of, of or holding the incentives off, which would, would cut into profits. That's going to obviously get harder as volumes decline. What do you see for the future of GM's Cadillac brand in China? They've done reason they've done very well actually, um, but uh, again, and they certainly have done better than than Lincoln, um, and uh, starting to catch up to the Germans who uh, have a very strong position in China. The obvious problem is if there's an overall decline in the Chinese market, which is what we're expecting, does it affect the high end or is it more at the uh, the broader, uh, lower uh, cost uh, part of the market? Um, again, it, it's such a, a, a competitive market at the high end. As I say, Cadillac's done a good job, but it's going to be hard to keep that going at the same rate. So, Alan, I'm wondering, a lot of people are talking about how the more that the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, the more challenging it's going to become for U.S. automakers. What's your take on that, basically, the idea that it's going to get more expensive for people to finance their auto purchases? Well, and that's obviously true. And and the other problem, of course, uh, is that who buys new cars? Um, and, and and generally, it's the upper middle class and the and and rich richer people. Uh, that is by design of the automakers. The automakers are thrilled with that because they can sell higher end products, which are of course more profitable. The good news with respect to interest rates is those people are less affected by the increase in interest rates because, of course, they have the higher income. Uh, the bad news is there's a limit on how how many cars those that part of the market will buy. Alan, is there a limit on the average selling price of a vehicle? Right now, it's about $36,000 for the quarter for you know automobiles like the Chevy Tahoe. And, and of course, that's because of the swing towards uh, pickups, 
crossovers, even in the in the luxury segment, because uh, crossovers are, of course, across the board, but increasing throughout the, the market, including uh, high-end, and sport utilities to a lesser degree. Um, the decline in car sales is, of course, the key uh, air, uh, indicator of why the, those numbers are going up. And as I say, the, the automakers are certainly on board with that. Uh, again, we, we get to this point where the the amount of pent-up demand has certainly been satiated because it was 2009 when we bottomed there, uh, and we've had a long time since then. Right. Uh, so it, it will be increasingly difficult to overcome that macro impact uh, as the, the market as a whole starts to trend down. Thanks very much. Alan Baum, auto analyst, principal at Baum & Associates. Shares of General Motors, they are higher right now by 7.5%. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 